Well, it's good to be with you this morning, church. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn in it or turn it on to the book of 2 Timothy. Uh, We'll start in chapter 2 and work our way over to chapter 3 here in just a few moments. Uh, Today, we're going to look at the last letter written by the Apostle Paul uh, before his death as tradition holds. It's not a biblical text, but that he was... uh, executed under Emperor Nero during his uh, very intense persecution uh, of Christians. And so we're going to look at some of these final words, not Paul's deathbed, uh, but just the time where Paul probably seemed to realize that the persecution, the intensity was different, and this time he was probably not going to be miraculously released from prison, as had been the case several times in the past. He was still filled with hope as he wrote this letter to Timothy. Uh, He made note of wanting some visitors and some personal items, uh, so he still had a lot of hope, but seemed to anticipate this was going to be his uh, final letter. So it's kind of more informal, uh, a little more personal to Timothy, and kind of gives what we would call some in-conclusion type comments to his friend and fellow minister for the gospel. And you see, last words and instructions uh, often carry a lot of weight for loved ones and those who are left behind. I think through scripture, uh, we read of Joseph when he was in Egypt telling his family to take his bones back to the promised land when they would go. And 400 years later, they honored that request. You think about Jesus as he suffered on the cross, looking at John and asking him to take care of his mother Mary, uh, and John uh, following through with that. Uh, We think of Jesus' last words on the mountain uh, with his disciples when he gave us the Great Commission by telling them to go and make disciples. Then there are Jesus' final words right before his ascension in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where he tells them they would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them, and then they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so those final words, those final instructions do carry a lot of weight for those who are left behind. That was true in ancient times, uh, and we see that it's still true today. I recently am not giving any any merit to or or, or opinion on it, but we just saw recently in the media where uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg requested that uh, there be no new Supreme Court nominee or selection during uh, the election cycle. And so it carries weight and significance. And sometimes, like Paul, uh, like uh, the, the the justice, we're able to think those things through, but sometimes life happens and we don't get a chance to think through those final words. Uh, I was reading this week about Pancho Villa, the famous Mexican revolutionary who was killed in an ambush, had his vehicle uh, riddled with bullets, kind of realizing that his time was there and that he didn't want to go out without saying something important. He said to those around him, don't let it end like this. Tell them I said something important. Well, they didn't make anything up, and those were his last words, that he wanted to say something important, but didn't. Uh, You know, I think, too, sometimes it's not that we are able to say those things, but a a message is immortalized and carried on, as we see with the Apostle Paul and Timothy here. I found some tombstones this week where people left some final messages. I loved this one, very simple very and to the point, I told you I was sick. Well, later, this lady's husband passed away, and his tombstone next to her said, and I was sick of hearing it. And then if these people wrote a parenting book, then I want a copy of it. It says, raised four beautiful daughters with only one bathroom, and still there was love. Man, that's doing something right. So in 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul's in a Roman prison, and he's writing a letter to Timothy, who was a fellow minister. He had been with Paul on missionary journeys. He had gone back to churches to encourage and, and to support them, to bring reports back to the Apostle Paul. Uh, he was a friend. 
He had been uh, trained and taught by the apostle. Paul was one of his star pupils. And so Paul, in this letter, writes and addresses several things, gives some instruction, gives some encouragement, some words of warning. But the primary theme we see over six times in the the book of 2 Timothy, uh, which gives us the primary theme of the book, is an emphasis and a focus on the importance of God's word in Timothy's life as an individual, but also for the life of of the church. So in first in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 2, he says, "And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also." So we see this instruction, I've taught you, you teach others, who will teach others, who will teach others. We see this replication going, and we're here today because of the links of this chain that continue to teach and preach the message messages of God's word. Later in verse 9, Paul uh, talked about his situation. He says, I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Someone once said that you don't have to defend the Bible. Defending the Bible is like defending a lion. All you have to do is unchain it and let it go. It's going to defend itself. And here the apostle Paul says, the Bible is not bound by anything. There's no limitations on what it can accomplish through God's power and work of the Holy Spirit. Later in chapter 2, verse 15, Paul says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And then on over in 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to pick up in verse 14 and work to our focal verse here. He says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. The words for sacred writings there reference the Old Testament writings. So Timothy was brought up uh, with a Jewish heritage because of his mother and his grandmother. Uh, His father was believed to be a Gentile who probably was an unbeliever, may have even been dead at this point. But his background had been faithful mother and grandmother who had poured into him the teachings of the Old Testament. Paul says, you've been acquainted with these sacred writings, he says, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith. In Christ Jesus. You see, the Old Testament gives us the wisdom, the knowledge that we need salvation, and it points forward to Jesus, who is the one who brings salvation. So Paul says that the sacred writings help you understand your need, which made you look forward to Jesus, who has now come, and because of your faith in him, you have been saved from your sin. And then he continues on, and this is what I want to be our focal passage today. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So why would Paul give this challenge of God's word? Well, he did so because of chapter 4, verse 1, where he gives this warning of what, what what would come. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. He says this, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. 
And so these words of the Apostle Paul kind of warn Timothy of what's coming in the future to remind him that in the presence, his primary priority as a Christ follower and as a pastor, a minister of the gospel, was to stay focused on God's word. And I want us to take some time and look at that today of how we keep God's word central in our lives and why we would want to keep God's word central in our lives. Back in chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says, all scripture. Here, this word references the entire body of scripture, both Old and New Testaments, some of which were still being written as in Paul's letter to Timothy. But he says, all scripture, uh, to remind him that this is a message. These are truths that they needed to hear and put into practice in their lives. And we don't have time today to fully explore the depths of the inspiration of Scripture, but I do want to read for you Peter's words on how the Scripture came to be inspired. He says, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So you see, Paul says that all Scripture is breathed out by God. God inspired men to write the words that they did write, which we now have in the Bible. And because God was inspiring it and guiding these men, yes, their personalities and their temperaments and, and some of their, uh, their, their uniqueness comes out in those things, but God protected it from error. He protected it from mistakes and from false teachings. We have truth because God is the one through the power of the Holy Spirit who guided and inspired these men to write the words that we have recorded in the scripture. So all scripture, he says, is breathed out by God. And this idea of breath in the Bible is an important thread as well. When you go back to Genesis chapter 2, we read these words. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. So he took dust, that which is inanimate, non-alive, and then it says, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. You see, only God is able to give life to something that has no life. I love the, the account of the arrogant scientist uh, who had gotten pretty proficient in his own mind at being able to uh, replicate life and, and manage it and, and bring, a, bring things into existence. And so he one day challenged God to a creating contest. So they got together to go over the terms of the contest to which God agreed. And as they were about to part ways and get started on creating the best man, they wanted to see who could create the better man. The man uh, scooped down and he, he reached in and scooped up a handful of dirt. And God looked at him and said, no, 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 no. You go make your own dirt. You see, even with all of our skills and our abilities and our scientific advancements, man is only able to take that which is living at a cellular level, put together with another living cell, and create a third living organism or entity. We cannot take and do what God has done in taking that which is not alive and giving it life. This is true both physically but it's also true spiritually. The Bible says that we are spiritually dead in our sins and our trespasses, and we don't come alive until the breath of God spiritually through the Holy Spirit is breathed into us to give us new life. And we see this concept of God breathing in throughout Scripture, the word in Genesis 2 uh, for God breathing into the nostrils of man is the word ruach, 
which is translated uh, wind uh, in the Old Testament of the Hebrew language. And that same word for breath or wind then gets translated into the New Testament to the word pneuma, which is the word given for the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised in John chapter 14, and that comes to fall on the disciples in Acts chapter 2. So breath or wind gives physical life in Genesis 2, and we see that same word applied to spiritual life all throughout Scripture as God gives life to his people. So all Scripture breathed out by God for what purpose? Well, Paul says that it's profitable. It's profitable. What does it mean that something is profitable? Well, it adds value. You buy something for $10, you sell it for $15, you made a $5 profit. And so it added value to your wallet uh, in that specific situation. And so God's Word adds value to our life, particularly to our lives as believers. Well, how does God's Word add value to our life? Well, I'm glad you asked the question. Let's look at how Paul answers that question. Paul says that all Scripture is profitable for teaching. And the word for teaching here refers to content. It tells us that the messages, the truths that we see in the Bible are true and they are trustworthy. Because ultimately the Bible tells us about God and God is true and he is trustworthy. So you see the teaching that the Bible outlines gives us a standard. It gives us a guide. It gives us a, a measure by which we can evaluate and we can consider everything, every situation, every circumstance in our life. We measure it against God's word. And so it's true and it's trustworthy. And, and one commentator put it this way. He said, it is inconceivable that God would give his people a book that they could not trust. Because he is. And you can write these scripture references down and look at them later. God is a God of truth. 1 John chapter 5. God sent Jesus, who is the truth, John 14, 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father through me. The definite article, the truth, is there, not a truth. He is the truth. So God is truth. He sent Jesus, who is the truth. He also sends, according to John 14, 7, the spirit of truth and gives us his word, which Jesus said in John 17, 17, which is also truth. So God can't give us anything other than truth, which is a standard, a measure by which we can evaluate everything in our lives. So scripture is profitable for teaching. It's also profitable, Paul says, for reproof. The word reproof here is a verb, so it's an action, and it means to rebuke someone for doing something wrong. It would apply to Timothy, reproofing or rebuking false teachers in the church who were teaching things against the doctrine, the truth of Scripture that had been given. But it also applies to individual believers as the Holy Spirit convicts us of not living rightly before God, not doing what God has called us to do, what He commands us to do in His Scripture. We are reproved, we are rebuked through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the teachings of His Word, sometimes personally, sometimes in the context of relationships with other believers. Uh, but we give ourselves to this correction, this conviction, so that we can again return to the standard of the teachings that God has set before us, which is what Paul talks about in the third uh, value from this passage of Scripture. He says, Scripture is profitable for correction. This word correction here is used only in the New Testament. It's the only time we find this word where he talks about correcting the life of a believer whose life is not aligning with scripture. 
Now, there are secular uses of this word uh, in Greek that we have in historical writings, and it's used to describe two things. One, it talks about setting up an object that has fallen down. So think about walking into a room and a, and a lamp. You, you've got a lamp sitting on a, on, a, on a table. You walk into the room and the lamp has fallen over. You're like, well, that shouldn't be there. You know, I wonder what kid did that, you know. And so you walk over and you set it back up to its upright position. That's this idea of correcting. The other use in secular Greek was that of helping a person back on his or her feet after they had stumbled. And as I read and studied this, this word will now forever be connected in my mind to my daughter Anna uh, in January of 2019. We had gone to the Right to Life march over at the Capitol, had been there for that. We were on our way back to the van. It was cold that day because obviously it's January uh, in Arkansas. And she's walking back to the van. She had her hands in her pocket. We all had our, our hands in the pocket. And as we're walking back to the van, Anna stepped in a hole, and I'm telling you, it was like a nanosecond. Anna was flat on her face on the ground, in the grass. I mean, this is textbook definition of a face plant, as in we're picking grass out of her hair and her eyebrows. So once we finally stopped laughing and kind of got the tears wiped out of our eyes, we helped pick Anna up and get her back on her feet. That's this picture of correction in the New Testament. And I want you to think about those pictures as they apply to God's Word. We're given a standard through the teachings of the Bible. We fail to meet that standard because we're sinners. We're fallen human beings. Well, God reproofs, He rebukes, He convicts us of our wrongdoing so that we can correct that through Him and return to the standard that He has set for us. And so we see this progression, this value that God's Word brings to our lives. And then Paul uh, finally talks about as we're seeking to grow in our obedience and our surrender to God, as we're corrected and put back on the path of serving God, he says that Scripture is profitable for training in righteousness. And this word picture is one that you're familiar with. It's the idea of training or discipline to a task or to something that maybe is awkward at first, but that you gain proficiency and skill and ability to be able to accomplish the more that you do it. Uh, you can illustrate this from your own life in a number of different ways. Uh, I think about a typing class that I took in high school. I'm so old that they used to make us do that. And boy, I did not like that class those first few weeks because we were supposed to type and do these letters and put our, our hands in the home position. And it was hard, and I thought, my fingers are never going to do what my brain is trying to tell it to do. But with some exercises, with some time, with some muscle memory, I actually came pretty proficient at that. And it's been one of the most beneficial classes in my entire educational career because I type a lot. You can ask any staff member about the emails that I send sometimes. I type a lot. There's a lot of information, and I'm so thankful to have learned that skill. That may apply to a professional skill that you have. You can think about it in a sport or exercise that you're a part of. A lot of different everyday things that start off a little shaky, we get better at as we train in the right way of doing those things. My youngest is uh, about to turn 14, and he's already asking about getting the book and being able to study and get his permit uh, when he turns 14 here in just a few months. And, and, and I kind of get a little bit of a panic attack that happens because I remember training my last two in driving and how close we got to those mailboxes and to ditches and to other cars and all kinds of inanimate objects as they first got on the road. I mean, it was a little harrowing and terrifying, but they got better over time. That's the idea here of Paul saying that God's word is helpful 
for training us in righteousness. Righteousness means living rightly. It's doing what God has called us to do. We don't do it naturally. It does, it's not something that just flows from us. We have to be trained according to the Holy Spirit, according to God's Word, and as we give ourselves more fully to that, then we are able to live rightly before God. And so what's the purpose of that? We, we're, we're taught, we're corrected, convicted when we do wrong, we're restored to that, we're trained in righteousness. Why would we want to live rightly? Well, Paul says that the man of God, could be woman of God there, just the believer of God, may be competent, equipped for every good work. I love that word competent that Paul uses right there. What comes to your mind when you hear the word competent? Someone who has an education, someone who has the necessary skills, the necessary training or experience to accomplish whatever they're trying to do. And they do it at a sufficient level that you're comfortable allowing them to do that. A competent teacher is able to teach others. A competent airline pilot gets you in the air through whatever you may experience and get you back on the ground safely, right, on your trip. A competent surgeon is able to go in and complete the procedure for which he or she, he or she is trying to accomplish that day. But just think about, well, are they competent? Well, what's the opposite? It's incompetent. Do we want an incompetent teacher, an incompetent airline pilot, an incompetent um, surgeon? No, we, we want a level of competency. But that word also conveys that we don't have to be an expert in that. I can go out and play a pickup game of basketball with some people, but am I an NBA elite level athlete? Obviously not, I'm standing here preaching to you, not playing in the NBA finals right now, right? So no, I can be competent at something, sufficient to get the task done without having to be an expert. And here's why I think that's important. I've talked with so many Christians in their lives who say they can't do something that God may have called them to. Well, I, I don't know the Bible well enough to be able to teach that class or that group. I mean, my life is a mess, and so I can't serve or I can't lead in that way or in that capacity. Well, I can't share my faith with anyone because I've got my own issues. I've got my own struggles in life. And so what we're saying in that when we give these excuses is we feel incompetent to do what God has called us to do. We don't use that word, but we give those excuses. But what the Apostle Paul is saying, you're not incompetent. You just need the empowerment. You need the, the knowledge, the instruction, the training, the correction of the Word of God through the Holy Spirit of God to equip you to do what God has called you to do. And if you will give yourself to that reading and that study of God's Word, He will indeed accomplish that task and that work. He says, so that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. When the Bible speaks of goods, good works, it's talking about the things that God calls us to do, the things that he purposes, that he plans, that he wants us to do. And when God has called us to it, you may have heard the expression, then he will see us through it. And he will give you, he has already given you everything you need to accomplish that task. But it starts with your time in the Word and allowing the Holy Spirit of God to sharpen and shape and transform you into this man or woman of God who is competent and equipped for every good work to which God has called you to. 
So I want to wrap up today and just challenge you to give yourself to the reading and the study and the instruction of God's Word. Why? Because the Apostle Paul warned us people aren't going to want to hear and follow these teachings. We need to give ourselves to this. And as we do, these verses remind us of the picture of the gospel, that God created us, He loves us, and has called us to a relationship with Him. That's our standard of perfection, the teaching that Paul referenced. But because of our sin, we fall short. We fail. The Garden of Eden, things were perfect. Sin entered in, and now we live in a fallen world where everything has been tainted and stained and negatively impacted and influenced by sin. But God convicts, he rebukes us of that, and then he gives us a correction for it to restore us back to its original state, which is through Jesus Christ. Jesus came and lived a perfect life. He could have gone straight to heaven. But instead of doing that, he traded his perfection for our sin so that we receive, the Bible says, and become the righteousness of God. So we have the standard, we fail, we're corrected through Jesus Christ, and then we live our life, the rest of our life, fulfilling, as Paul told Timothy, the ministry, the calling of evangelists. Remember that great commission, that Acts 1-8, to go make disciples. You'll be my witnesses when you receive the Holy Spirit. That is our calling. That is our ministry. That's the work of evangelism. And this ver these, this, these verses are the message of evangelism, that God loves us and wants a relationship with us. We've sinned. Jesus made a way for our sins to be forgiven, and now we can live rightly and righteously through the Holy Spirit who lives and indwells within us. So today, I want to challenge you to give yourself to the study and the reading of God's Word on a regular and consistent basis. That's the application. That's the takeaway. That's the challenge for today. I hope you've been reading with us through the New Testament. If so, continue on with us now through the end of the year as we begin the book of Titus and Philemon, and we kind of continue on in this. If you haven't been doing that, then start right now. One resource I want to make available for you is a Bible reading log. It's going to be in our Sunday Hub today. You can visit gsfbc.org slash Sunday Hub, and there's a Bible reading log on there, and you're like, what's a Bible reading log? Bible reading log is one of the greatest gifts that I've ever discovered to help me systematically and regularly and consistently increase my reading and understanding of the Bible. There's a cumulative impact to reading through the Bible. As you read through it, it's not a one and done, okay, I read it, I'm finished, like a chapter book. You go back and you cycle through again, and you go back and you cycle through again, and each time you learn more because there's more of God for us to learn. But early in my life, as I was a, a, a child and a teenager, um, I, would, I would start, I would go to church camp and I would get so excited about growing in, in my relationship with God and wanting to do what God had called me to do that I would come back from church camp. And my number one commitment every year was, God, I'm going to read the Bible all the way through and I'm going to do it this first week back from church camp. So I would start in Genesis. And Genesis is a great place to start. It's a narrative, it's stories, it's people. There, there's all this action and activity taking place. I'd read Genesis. I'd get into Exodus. I could handle, you know, most of Exodus. I even saw, you know, ESPN didn't come up with the first top ten. God gave us the top ten commandments, you know, so I could get through Exodus. And without a doubt, every year I hit Leviticus like a brick wall. I'm like, Lord, is there something in here I'm supposed to know and learn? Because if it is, I don't even know how to find it. And I would get discouraged, I would feel defeated, and I would give up. And then later I would start over in Genesis. Well, I got this Bible reading log, 
And man, I could start and I could read and when I would miss a few days or a couple of weeks, I could go back and say, oh, here's where I'm at. And I would pick up and I was able to just begin to work my way through and build on this knowledge of walking and growing through a study uh, and through reading God's word. And so I want to make that available to you. Finish with us through the New Testament. As we get to January, you say, hey, where am I going to go now? What am I going to do? Maybe start in Genesis. And here's a, a general rule of thumb. If you read two Old Testament chapters and one New Testament chapter every day, you will, in roughly a year, read through the Old Testament once and the New Testament twice every day, two and one, reading through those chapters. And so that log is available to you. I encourage you to read that. If that doesn't work for you, there are a thousand and one ways to give yourself to the regular and consistent reading and study of God's Word. Just find one. Find one that works for you. The best plan is the one that works for you. So find a partner, use your, you know, gather your family together, whatever it takes. Give yourself to the study of God's word. If you do so, then we will all be able to experience and fulfill the challenge that Paul gave to Timothy in chapter 2, verse 15, when he says this, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. Notice what he says there, a worker. What does a worker do? They work. It's not easy to sit and try and read the Bible. We have an enemy who wants to distract us and discourage us, but work at it. Be a worker who's not ashamed of the effort that you're putting in, that you, as Paul says, rightly handle the word of truth. Then God will do his work of transforming you in the power of the gospel as you give yourself to the study of God's word and of his scripture. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you so much that you have given us your word. God, you didn't just call us to this earth and set us on this planet, call us to a relationship with yourself where we're forgiven of our sins through Jesus, and then say, figure it out. God, you've given us instruction, very detailed instruction. And Lord, I, I won't begin to pretend that we're going to know and understand every single thing about you. You're God and we're not. But God, you've given us the Holy Spirit to guide us into truth to show us how we should live, how we should more fully surrender ourselves to you. And so, God, I pray that all those hearing my voice online today, God, that they would be challenged to give themselves more diligently, more faithfully, more consistently to the study of your word. Because, God, I'm just crazy enough to believe that if we will read and we will study and we'll allow your Holy Spirit to speak to us, that, God, you will do an incredible work in us and through us for the glory and honor of your kingdom. So God, increase our desire, increase our hungry, our hunger, and God, do your work through this. Lord, we ask and pray this in Christ's precious name.